Hey, how's it going, New Hope? When is the last time you experienced joy to such an extent that it caused you to, to sing and to dance and to actually shout out loud? I lived in Madison, Wisconsin for about 18 years, and uh, one of the, my favorite things about living in Madison is being able to go to University of Wisconsin sporting events. Sports Illustrated named Madison the best collegiate sports town in America, and for good reason. In the fall, when the University of Wisconsin Badgers host a football game, the entire town turns red. They, they have their football games in a stadium called Camp Randall Stadium. I think there's going to be a picture that's coming up. It was built in 1917. It's the fourth oldest stadium in the country, and it holds over 80,000 people. Back on October 10th, 1998, Drew Brees, the, the quarterback who, who now plays for the Saints, he was in college at Purdue. Uh, Purdue was uh, driving down the field, I think, to take the lead. And the third quarter ended, and it went into the fourth quarter. And when that happens in college football, you switch ends of the field. So suddenly, as the fourth quarter is starting, Drew Brees was leading his team into the teeth of the UW student section. There's like 20,000 of them or something like that. And all of a sudden, before they resume play, over the loudspeaker, and it's, it's loud, a song uh, by, uh, by House of Pain called Jump Around. It wasn't a very well-known song then, but it became a well-known song. Started to blare through the speakers. And all of a sudden, this happened. A video is gonna come up on your screen. Crazy. Uh, the Badgers went on to, to win the game. And after that, for the next 22 years, every single home game at the end of the third quarter, before the start of the fourth quarter, they play jump around. The entire stadium, 80,000-plus people, jump. And I had the privilege of going to numerous uh, Badger football games to participate. Maybe you've seen this watching the Badgers play at some point. They, they always highlight it. It's crazy watching it, but oh my goodness, to be there was incredible. I'm not being hyperbolic when I tell you when everybody jumps around. It's an old stadium. The stadium actually moves. It's a little disoriented. What we're seeing is pure, unmitigated joy. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're in the third week of a series called Carols of Christmas. We're taking a well-known Christmas carol, uh, looking at it, uh, how it's grounded in Scripture, and how it prepares us and equips us to celebrate the season we're in of Advent. I hope you're leaning into Advent. Uh, we gave you the Advent kits. Many of you picked those up. You can also access all of that material if you're kind of coming in and you didn't know about it or you weren't able to get one online. I hope you're leaning into the Advent season, creating rhythms, uh, remembering, looking forward to what's coming, and especially the Advent candles as we commemorate each week of Advent, uh, celebrates a certain attribute of the Advent season. And today we light the joy candle. So of course, we're going to look at the well-known Christmas carol, Joy to the World. So you may know the lyrics, but let's go ahead and read them before we talk about where this song came from. Here we go. Joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. It's hard not to keep repeating that lie, right? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove 
the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. All right, what's the history of the song? Where did this well-known, perhaps the most well-known Christmas carol, I think it's been recorded the most times, where did this come from? It came from uh, three collaborators that never intended to collaborate. They are linked together in that all three of them are non-conformists. The first is the author, and that's Isaac Watts. Maybe you've heard his name before. He was born in 1674 uh, over in England. He was born to a very non-conformist family. The Church of England kind of dominated the day as Isaac was growing up, and they were not part of the Church of England, so he was kind of always an outsider. Isaac was brilliant. He learned Latin at age four, Greek at age nine, and Hebrew at age 13. Uh, He wrote a book on logic later in life that was used at both Cambridge and Oxford for 100 years. Isaac was also really gifted at writing songs. And he was known as a nonconformist because in the day that he grew up, the Church of England would only sing songs in church that were directly from Scripture, word for word from the Psalms or from another Scripture passage. Isaac uh, decided to write paraphrases of scripture so that they could be sung more easily by the people. Many people considered him a heretic for doing this. Isaac went on and wrote 750 hymns, and for good reason, he's known as the father of the English hymn. In 1719, uh, Watts published a paraphrase of the Psalms meant to be put to music and sung called the Psalms of David, uh, imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. That's like the worst title ever for a book. Uh, But he took Psalm 98, was one of the Psalms, and he paraphrased it. The second half of Psalm 98 is what uh, came to be known as joy to the world. So there's our first collaborator. Isaac Watts. Second, you'll probably also know this person for sure, uh, George Frederick Handel uh, was born in Germany around the same time as Isaac Watts, although they didn't collaborate together on this carol. Uh, He was born in 1685. He was also a nonconformist because Handel would take the writings and at the time in the King James Version and put them to music for the common folk, if you will. Uh, The most famous example of this, you may well know it, is Handel's Messiah. When I was in Madison, the the conductor of the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra went to our church, and every year uh, the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra would do uh, a a performance of Handel's Messiah. In many years, we hosted it at our church, and uh, great memories of sitting and just listening to the the majesty of Handel's Messiah. If you've never heard it, I encourage you uh, to do so. So there's collaborator number two. We'll, We'll get back to how they collaborated. Collaborator number three is the person who brought it all together. His name is Lowell Mason, probably have not heard from him, an American. He was born in 1792, about a a century later. He was a banker in South Carolina, but his true love was writing music, and he would write it on the side. He didn't want anybody to know because it wouldn't have been good for his banking career for whatever reason. He finally decided to give it a go, move to Boston, and went all in on music. Uh, He was a nonconformist and criticized because he would take European classical music and tunes and kind of take pieces of them and adopt them into new forms. Nothing wrong about that, but it just wasn't the way things were done, but he decided to do it. So he was also a nonconformist. He uh, wrote the tune, a little, little side fact here, for Mary Had a Little Lamb. Lowell went on to be superintendent of the Boston Public Schools and he is credited for bringing music education to the public school system. He later moved to New York City and became the director uh, for music, essentially the worship director of First Avenue Presbyterian Church, a pretty large uh, church in New York City at the time. 
He was also nonconformist in that at the time, uh, church uh, worship was basically hiring professionals to sing to the people who would sit there and listen. And uh, Lowell didn't like that. Lowell wanted the congregation to sing. So he began to create music. He got rid of all the professional musicians except for the organist and invited uh, the congregation to sing. He is known as the father of congregational singing. At some point around 1836 to 1839, Lowell Mason brought this all together. He was a lover of Handel and Handel's Messiah. He was a lover of Isaac Watts's writing. So he took the second part of Psalm 98 that Isaac Watts paraphrased and wrote to be put to music and took snippets of Handel's Messiah and forged them together in what has come to be known as joy to the world. Uh, it was published in 1848, and then in 1911, the Trinity Choir began to perform it, and it became famous. When you read the lyrics, or just having heard me read them, maybe you've never thought about this, what do you recognize almost immediately? And it's the same answer to the question I asked you last week. And the answer is, it's not very Christmassy, even more so than the songs that we looked at uh, last week. Look through, uh, think back through, sing the lyrics back to yourself, if you will. You probably know Joy to the World. There's hardly anything Christmassy about them. There's no manger, there's no Bethlehem, there's no Mary, there's no Joseph, there's no angels, there's no shepherds, there's no baby Jesus. Like, this is like the accidental Christmas carol. In fact, if we could travel back in time and if you bumped into Isaac Watts on the street and you're like, dude, your Christmas carol, Joy to the World, I love it. He would look at you like you were a mad person. Like, like, what's wrong with you? What do you mean Christmas carol? That was not ever his intent. If you sang it to him in the street, wait, wait, like, let me sing it to you. He wouldn't even recognize uh, the tune. And yet here we have probably the most popular, the most sang Christmas carol, Joy to the World, is not Christmassy at all. In fact, it has nothing to do with Christmas, but it has everything to do with Advent, and we'll get into that. We know for sure we had to do a little guesswork on our first uh, two songs on uh, what they were inspired by, and we're, we're pretty confident the, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, this week, there's no ambiguity. We know exactly what inspired uh, Isaac Watts to write this, Psalm 98. So Steve Robertson, uh, who's, who's joining our team from Mount Scott, we're so, so grateful to have Steve. He's such an awesome dude. He's going to be reading Psalm 98 for us. So Steve, Take it away. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his mighty arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing joy and songs of praise. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with the lyre and the sound of music. With trumpets and the sound of horns, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth, and he will judge with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. 
let's remember that, that psalms are meant to be prayed and sung, prayed and sung. It was their prayer book of the Hebrew people. Uh, it, it was also their hymnal, if you will. We don't always know the tunes, but they, they sang many of these, these psalms. What uh, this song, it, psalm essentially is about is uh, people singing joyfully to the Lord. Uh, it's, it's got a progression. If you look down at it, it's nine verses, and you can break them off into one through three, four through six, seven through nine. The three stanzas, if you will. And there's a progression of worship and joy that flows throughout the psalm. Let's talk about that just for a second. In verses one through three, Israel is singing joyfully to God. Uh, they're singing a new song. They're anticipating the coming reign and rule of God. Um, they're remembering. They're looking back at the marvelous things that God has done for them. So then it goes in four through six, we're going from, from Israel and God's people being joyful to now the entire world is joyful. Everybody is joining in on the song and the joy that, that, that Israel is experiencing. The psalmist gives us this vivid imagery twice in these three verses. He uses the Hebrew word, which is translated in the NIV as a shout for joy. And it's literally a shout for joy. It's, it's jubilation. It's, it's unrestrained. It's uncontainable. It's bursting forth. And then, it's, then the psalmist tells us it, it turns into a jubilant song. So just picture, this is what the psalmist wants us to picture, the entire world, everybody singing this jubilant song. And then he talks about harp and trumpet and ram's horn. One of the things I often got previously and have throughout all of my, my church life um, during worship when we were fully embodied prior to COVID, during worship, every once in a while, someone would come up and be like, the music's too loud, I can't hear. And, and, and that's a warranted critique at times. And we, we work really hard at New Hope to keep the decibel level uh, safe. But if I was gonna be a snarky pastor, and I would never be a snarky pastor, but if I were gonna be, I could say, well, I don't know if you would have been able to handle the worship at the temple and the worship of God's people. Because the one thing we know about as we read the Old Testament is it was loud, really loud with all these instruments. If you don't believe me, just go sometime to Ezra 3 and read that passage. The, the temple's been destroyed and they're starting to rebuild it. They're laying a foundation and a worship service breaks out and they name even more instruments and everybody's playing. And what Ezra tells us is that the people made such noise that it could be heard from far, far away. It was really, really loud. And this is what the psalmist wants us to hear. That's the, the heart of these Hebrew words that's repeated twice. Shout for joy. It's that scene from Camp Randall, just unrestrained, out of control, bursting forth joy. That's what God and his work is supposed to provoke in his people. Now, finally, we have a progression. So Israel, the entire world, and now the psalmist tells us in the last three verses, all of creation beyond humanity, all of creation is now joyful in joining in this jubilant psalm. Uh, the seas, we're told, the rivers, the mountains are singing joyfully to the Lord. We see this throughout the psalms. We see this idea picked up in the New Testament. You may have thought um, of Romans right away, where Paul talks about all of creation is waiting in eager but frustrated expectation for humanity to be restored. If we know any line from the, the carol, Joy to the World, um, we probably know the line, Joy to the World, for the Lord is come. And that's pulled directly, as Isaac Watts writes it off Psalm 98, from uh, near the end of Psalm 98, for the three words I, uh, uh, the psalmist says, For he comes. 
for he comes. Uh, joy uh, looks back and remembers, but joy is also looking forward, and that's what this psalm is doing. That's what the song Joy to the World is doing, and that's what the Advent season does. You may have only grown up in a, in a tradition that talked about Christmas, and it was, it was all about Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and that's wonderful. There's lots to celebrate. But the Advent season that we've been inviting you in to celebrate goes all the way back to the 5th century. And it's all these Sundays, and it's a, it's a building up. And the Advent season, traditionally, the birth of Jesus and the celebration of that was only one small aspect of it, the looking back to remember the first coming of our king. It was important, and it is important, and we want to celebrate as we look back and we're joyful over that first coming. But traditionally, the Advent season, all the way from the 5th century on, has, has probably more been about what's coming. And it's a looking ahead, so it's a it's a remembering to look forward. It's a looking back to point forward as we experience joy over the first coming of our King and our Savior. It's almost a dress rehearsal for what's coming, which will be an even greater thing to be joyful about. So let's, we're, we're doing the joy candle today, joy to the world. <laughs> Psalm 98 is all about joy. Let's talk a little bit about this word joy. Like our word peace last week, we misconstrue the meaning sometimes. We need to make sure we're precise when we talk about joy. One of the mistakes people make is they conflate joy with pleasure. Joy is not pleasure. Here's a couple differences. Pleasure, pleasure has to be manufactured. It's, it comes from food or drink or entertainment or experiences. We have to do something to create pleasure. Uh, we have to maybe pay for pleasure uh, or earn pleasure or conjure it up in some way. Joy, we can't manufacture it. You can't, you can't pay for joy. You can't just make yourself joyful. Pleasure is manufactured, but joy is a gift. The, the Greek words for, for joy and grace share the same root. Joy is a gift. It's a, it's a gift from the Spirit. When we look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, joy is the second fruit mentioned. Paul in uh, Philippians 4.4 4, tells us, uh, those of us who follow Jesus, to rejoice in the Lord. Again, Paul says, rejoice. Paul's not telling us to rejoice because of Jesus. He's telling us th that we rejoice in Jesus, that our, that our joy springs forth from what Jesus has done for us and accomplished on our behalf. So pleasure needs to be manufactured. Joy is a gift. Another difference, pleasure desires more pleasure, but joy desires more God. Pleasure, whether it's, you know, and pleasures aren't, aren't innately evil or bad, but pleasure, whether it comes from food or drink or, or, or experiences or entertainment, you need more of that to keep the pleasure going. You got to feed pleasure. Pleasure's an in and of itself. And I think those of us who find and live for just pleasure find the shelf life gets shorter and shorter. You need more and more and more and more, and that leads to addiction. That's a whole other topic. Joy doesn't operate like that. Joy doesn't feed on more joy. It doesn't need more joy. Joy needs more God because joy is sourced, rejoice in the Lord and God and what God has done for us. And finally, and perhaps uh, most importantly, a pleasure opposes pain and joy partners with pain. Pleasure um, is the antithesis of pain. It, it, it avoids pain at all cost. It's the very opposite. Joy doesn't avoid it, uh, pain. It doesn't ignore pain. It doesn't try to numb pain. Joy uh, partners with pain. In the midst of pain and suffering, joy can flourish. 
In many of our Psalms, we see these commingling of lamenting and tears and frustration at the suffering and the pain in the world mixed with joy. They're not the opposites. They, they actually work together. The writer of Hebrews tells us that our Lord Jesus says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Just think about that. Jesus is hanging on a cross in agony, the epitome of pain and suffering, and he has a deep, profound joy. Joy is, is hearty like that. C.S. Lewis, uh, the, the great Oxford uh, teacher, scholar, who, who was a skeptic and an atheist for much of his life, but later in his life came to follow Jesus and then write so many great things about the way of Jesus. He says joy was a key component of him moving from atheism to, to the way of Jesus. And he, he has this great quote that he, he doubts that anyone who has ever uh, tasted joy would exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. Uh, joy uh, is not pleasure. So if joy is not pleasure, what is joy? I'm so glad you asked. I'm always tinkering around with definitions and reading and trying to steal good things from other people and get into the nuance of the words. And so I have a living definition of joy. It may change, but right now I would define joy as boundless satisfaction, boundless satisfaction. Satisfaction, uh, one of the meanings of it is that it means paid in full. And that, that represents the, the heart and the foundation of our joy in Jesus, that, that, that Jesus has done the work for us. Um, our sins have been covered. It's paid in full. But joy is, is also the satisfaction. It's, it's, it's boundless. It, it's not dependent on food and drink and entertainment and experiences. And it, it doesn't get smothered by pain and suffering. It can exist and flourish in the midst of all of that. Joy is, is boundless satisfaction. Eugene Peterson, um, who passed away a few years ago, just, just love Eugene Peterson. He's kind of my pastor from afar and always will be. He has this great line. He says, joy builds on the past and borrows from the future. Joy builds on the past and borrows from the future. And that's the component we see at work in Psalm 98. It's the component we see at work in joy to the world. It's the component we see at work in Advent. That's why joy is such a great characteristic of the Advent season. Joy um, borrows from the past. That word in Psalm 98 of remembering, they, they remembered. God's people were instructed to have these three great pilgrim festival feasts where they would, they were, if they could get to Jerusalem three times a year, they would come and they'd reenact the great stories of God's provision for them. And they would find joy in that. And that's some of our heart, that's some of my heart, our team's heart uh, for you. That's why our team put so much work in these Advent kits is that we could enter in our own way these seasons that are really important to remember the story we're a part of. And as we gather with, with our families or with our friends, or even if we're alone and we gather around the candles and, and we do the readings and we do the activities and we get this rhythm in our hearts and our minds that we're remembering, that's a key component uh, of joy that joy borrows from the past, where it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's grounded in the work that's already done, the faithfulness of God, the work of Jesus on the cross. But joy, it also builds towards the future. There, there, there's, a, there's a remembering of joy, and then there's an anticipation of joy. Both of them are there in the Word. And as we are in the Advent season, we're constantly uh, called to look forward. We're kind of doing this dress rehearsal as we look back to have joy and getting ready in our spirits for what's coming. It'll just blow our minds. We can't even conceive of what's coming. It's so incredible. 
Uh, psalm 126 is, is another psalm that talks about this, and I, I really, really love this psalm. Uh, and it says this, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, so we're looking back, we're remembering, we were like those who dreamed, looking forward. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy, boundless satisfaction. When they're looking back, when the Lord restored our fortunes, they're remembering joy is grounded in what God has already done. But then it says, I look ahead. They looked ahead and they were dreaming of what's to come. Can we imagine when the promises of God come to fruition in our midst? The next verse, verse four, uh, Eugene Peterson, the message translates it simply as, and now do it again, God. And now do it again, God. Isn't that awesome? God, we see what you've done for us. It's demonstrative. It's incredible. The work of Jesus on the cross, the restoration of our hearts, the, the kingdom coming to our world. It's incredible. We find joy there. It's not dependent on anything other than what you've done. Now we look forward. Now do it again, God. Do it again, God. What a great Advent prayer. Just simply do it again, God. In the midst of the season we're in, it's, it's very dark and troublesome and lots of fear and anxiety. We look back and remember, and we have hope. Do it again, God. Do it again, God. And we take joy in that. That's kind of how joy works. Finally, uh, joy is, is meant to be shared. If we're just reading through Joy to the World, if we're reading through Psalm 98, that just jumps off the page at us. Joy isn't meant to be kept to ourselves. Joy is a, is a communal event. That's why it, it so deeply saddens me when I look in my own life and see joylessness, and I look at other followers of Jesus and I see joylessness. And we're not perfect. There's grace there. We're in process. But if followers of Jesus should be known for anything, it should be joy. We should be people of joy. When the Catholic Church uh, decides to make someone a, a saint, they enter in an entire process and they've got to do this checklist, they do miracles, all these kind of things. One of the things I bet you didn't know is to be considered a saint, someone, and this is their term, has to show proof of joy. <laughs> proof of joy. That's maybe a vulnerable question. If someone looked at your life and my life, could they see a proof of joy? Um, if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, it should characterize my life. It should characterize your life. It should characterize the church. Jesus said uh, in one of his teachings, when we ask of the Lord and we receive, then our joy is made complete. Isn't that a great idea? And maybe there's another Advent prayer. Uh, Lord, make my joy complete. Maybe we, that's our Advent. Uh, God, I, I sense there's a joylessness in me. Make my joy complete. Um, one writer said, because of Jesus, those of us who follow him, uh, we have joy in the blood. Joy in the blood. That's a great idea. Uh, so if we've re we receive joy and we're feeling it and it's grounded in the past and it's coming in the expectation of what God has promised, then we're meant to share it. We're, we're not meant to, uh, to keep it to ourselves. Um, when Jesus is coming in uh, for Palm Sunday, if you're familiar with that, that story in our event, and, and that's in, in Luke, I believe, and, and some of the other Gospels, he's coming in, he's on kind of the small donkey, and they're excited. The people at this point, they won't be excited in a few days, but they're excited at this point. They think he could be the one. They think he could be the king. That's the scene we're meant to, to capture. So they're kind of parting the ways. Jesus is entering this incredible city with the backdrop of the temple, 
And, and we know he has tears on his face because he knows what's coming. But that scene fulfilled Zechariah 9.9, that if you, if you reference it, it talks about joy. And Luke tells us that uh, the whole crowd was joyfully praising God. So if you refer to, to Zechariah 9.9, that fulfills that. That's what's supposed to happen when the Messiah entered. Um, and then the religious leaders, they're always like, wah, wah, wah. They're like, Jesus, tell them to be quiet because they knew what the people were saying about Jesus and, and it was an affront to them because they obviously didn't agree. And they're, Jesus, tell them to be quiet, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus has this great line. He says, well, if I tell them to be quiet and they listen, then even the rocks will cry out. Then even the rocks will cry out in joy, which goes back to some of the imagery of all of creation joining in this joyful song. Um, let's not leave it to the rocks. How about that as a goal this Advent season? Let's not leave it to the rocks. Let's make sure we're not being quiet. Um, we can have joy with tears streaming down our eyes, with broken hearts. That's the heartiness of joy because it's not dependent on our circumstances and us. It depends on what God's already done, which is so incredible for us and, with, and what's coming, which is, is gonna be even more incredible when God makes all things right. That's where our joy is founded. So this Advent season, those of us who follow Jesus, even in this hard, dark Advent season, let's seek joy. Let's be people of joy that share it. Um, I've kind of got the Clark Griswold mentality when it comes to lights in the house, and I'm always trying to add them. And especially this year, um, our whole family's like, let's get up lights early. I don't think we're the, the only ones doing that. And let's add some. Let's, let's buy some new things. And so you'll see a picture come up of, of a yard sign that, that was one of our additions this year. I love it. And it, it says joy. And that's one small way, the Rosensteel home, if you drive by our house, we're trying to just hopefully in a, a non-offensive way, just promote what we feel like is the heart of this season. Uh, because of what's in the O there, uh, the coming of the Lord and what he promised he will one day bring, we can have joy. But hopefully it's not just displayed in the yard sign. You see it in my life and you see it in the lives of our family as we follow Jesus. Let's go back to Camp Randall as, as we close. One of my favorite aspects of being, I, I lost track of how many games I went to, how many jump arounds I was part of. But one of the things that I love, and I didn't notice it the first couple of times, but increasingly did, is when it all happens, and it'll go on for like 45 seconds, just the stadium shaking and rocking, and it's just unmitigated joy. I would look down at the, at the visiting sideline to imagine them, <laughs> you know, it's not a home game. Maybe they got a few family and friends there, but it's like 80,000 people in red, you know, wanting them to lose. As I watched them, and a lot of times for the players for the first time that experience it, they didn't know what, they don't know what to do. Like, and then suddenly it would take 10 seconds, maybe 15 seconds, invariably by the end, almost the entire visiting team is jumping up and down. It's incredible. That's because joy is contagious. And when we have joy and, and we, we express our joy of what God has done and what he wants to do on our behalf, it's contagious. Others will just join in. They won't even have a choice. It'll just take over their bodies and they'll become joyful. And, and we see that progression in Psalm 98. So today, um, maybe right after the service, maybe this afternoon, maybe tonight, hopefully, you'll light your joy candle. Maybe you'll be by yourself. Maybe you'll be with other people. However it's done, that's a moment. And I want you to, I want you to lean into these moments. Uh, this, this is a way of you entering the story, you're part of the story God's been writing, the story God's writing with your life. And I wanna give you two ideas. One is you light the joy candle today. 
I want you to sing joy to the world. Maybe you know it, or maybe you need to go, go reference the lyrics and sing along. Our team recorded it uh, last year. I think it's relatively easy to find that recording. Maybe you turn it on and, and, and our team can be the backdrop and help you find the right melody. Uh, however you wanna do it, just sing joy to the world. And maybe you have tears in your eyes because of the season you're in, and that's okay. Joy's not dependent on that. Joy's hearty like that. Uh, and then you light the candle. And, but maybe right before you light the candle, I want to give you another idea. I came across this really cool prayer, and I'm going to read it to you to close. Um, we'll, we'll have it. You, you received it if you get our emails. You received it as part of the email uh, you received earlier today. Um, it, it'll be pushed out on our app. You'll also find it on our social media. It's from a book called Every Moment Holy. It's a really, really cool prayer book by Douglas McKelvey. Highly recommend it. Um, but the name of this little prayer, it's kind of an excerpt of the prayer, is A Liturgy to Mark the Start of the Christmas Season. So we'll, we'll close in this. We'll kind of go right into prayer from this. But you'll have this, and right now, you can even close your eyes, and I encourage you to do so, and just let these words roll over your minds and your hearts as we try to enter this story. Maybe joys come easy to you. Um, maybe it, it, it needs to come as a gift, and we need to ask for it. But I hope this, this prayer can position our hearts to experience the joy that is freely given to us in Christ. So here's the prayer. You came once for your people, O Lord, and you will come for us again. As we decorate and celebrate, we do so to mark the memory of your redemptive movement into our broken world, O oh God. Our glittering ornaments and Christmas trees, our festive carols, our sumptuous feast, by these small tokens we affirm that something amazing has happened in time and space, that God on a particular night in a particular place so many years ago was born to us, an infant king, our prince of peace. Our wreaths and ribbons and colored lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends, these have never been ends in themselves. They're but small ways in which we repeat that sounding joy first proclaimed by angels in the skies near Bethlehem. In view of such great tidings of love announced to us and to all people, how can we not be moved to praise and celebration in this Christmas season? As we decorate our tree, as we feast and laugh and sing together, we are rehearsing our coming joy. We are making ready to receive the one who has already with open arms received us. We would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our home, Lord Christ. Now we celebrate your first coming, Emmanuel, even as we long for your return, O Prince of Peace, our elder brother, return soon, for we miss you so. And all God's people said, amen.